the Media Society Podcast. Welcome to the fourth Media Society podcast. I'm Paul Blanchard. You probably know the format by now. Once a fortnight, we get together with two key media players and discuss the top news stories. Today's topics include the Super Bowl. A 30-second spot costs $4 million. Are the big brands getting value for money or would they be better off turning to social media and spending the money there? Is Number 10's media team too controlling? Outgoing Sky News political editor Adam Bolton says that covering politics is now no fun thanks to what he calls an army of mini Alistair Campbells trying to limit access to politicians. Is he right? Top Gear returns to the BBC for its 21st series. No doubt the BBC will be happy with more than 5 million viewers, but is this the sort of show that should be left to the commercial networks? And The Daily Mail. The editor, Paul Dacre, earns a whopping £1.8 million and is the highest paid editor in the country, if not the world. What is it about this paper that people love, or indeed love to hate, so much? Well, we're joined by two of the media's best and brightest, Jamoke Fashola and James Hutchinson. James, how would you describe yourself? With some difficulty, I think. I call myself a communications consultant. That's what it says here. I don't like the word consultant. Some people have a really bad reaction to the word, so I might drop it at some point. I help people and organisations communicate, say things, whether it's the spoken word, the written word. I do traditional PR, traditional media. I advise on messaging. I write speeches. I used to be an actor, so I coach people to deliver pieces of communication verbally and use their voices. I do a lot with social media, very new, um, huge amount there at the moment. And I also advise companies on communicating with their customers. So like Maybe you said, I don't think the, the phrase communication consultant does it justice, really. It doesn't really. I think it's the breadth of what I do is a blessing and a curse. Maybe I'm a master of all trades and... No, other way around. <laughs> yeah, Maybe yeah. I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. And we're joined by Jamoke Fashola, who I know uh, from listening to her regular BBC London show, but that is just one string to her bow. Jamoke, what else do you do? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, alongside being a, a radio presenter, I've presented on television before. I also sing jazz, so uh, that's one of the things I've got going on at the moment, Re- launching my uh, debut album very, very soon uh, this month. Um, I also run a uh, jazz and spoken word night upstairs at Ronnie Scott's, which is all about bringing word and music together. Um, in previous incarnations of me, I've run the BBC's induction programme, so I've done a lot of work for the BBC and sort of like probably pretty embedded in there. Wow. So BBC life, as it were, with uh, stuff on the side. With stuff with on the amazing side. stuff. Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, James, I think we'll start with you. Do you, think, um, do you think most people love the Daily Mail or do you think they love to hate it? I think it's both. Some people love the Daily Mail. It's read by millions of people every day. Some people hate it with a passion. To come back to your introduction where you asked if Paul Dacre was worth his money in commercial terms yes of course he is he runs an incredibly successful commercial operation that happens to be a newspaper and it's unsurprising that he's paid a lot of money people who are very good and very in demand tend to be in certain industries and newspaper industry is no exception I think there is another side to the argument though the moral question if you like of whether the Daily Mail What sort of influence on Britain the Daily Mail is? I think there's perhaps a belief among its defenders that it just simply reflects the concerns of Middle England. There was a brilliant piece on Dacre in The New Statesman a couple of weeks ago by Peter Wilby, which I thought was very fair and very balanced and and painted both sides. And this was one question he discussed. So is it just reflecting what people believe or is it feeding what people believe? And, And why I come down 
against the Daily Mail ultimately is that I think it feeds what people believe. I don't think it reports the truth. Sometimes it reports the complete opposite of the truth, it seems to some people, and there's been some quite big exposés of them simply printing inaccuracies to suit a particular political agenda. And that's why I would come down against it, because I think there's a difference between a news outlet that has a particular slant, a particular perspective that sort of stirs things up in a particular way and actually creates news, if you like, to try and prove a pre-existing agenda. That, for me, is ideology. And whether it's right or left, I have a really, really big problem with that. So is he worth his money in commercial terms? Yes. Am I a fan? No. I'm really conflicted with the Daily Mail because, you know, I'm an addict. I read it every day on my uh, iPhone as I go home. But it is... I always feel dirty afterwards. It's, mm. It makes everyone, I think particularly women, feel bad about themselves, whether it be about themselves physically. I mean, Jamoke, do, do you think the Mills... I was going to say vaguely misogynist, but just I don't even think it's vaguely, is no, it? No, no, it's There's not. There's a loaded question. It's, yeah, no, <laughs> it's not vaguely misogynist, but th- there is a very interesting thing. Myself and my friends, sometimes we read the Daily Mail, and there is, if you are online... There's what we call the sidebar of shame, yes. where you, you, for some odd reason, you cannot stop. You keep going back to these stories that really mean nothing, are meaningless. I mean, I think just reflecting what uh, James has said, the question for me is, what does it say about us as consumers that this newspaper still exists? Because it would not exist without the consumers. And we do consume it. And I know that... I will take, certainly when I'm doing programmes, I'll take several uh, broadsheets and then I'll automatically reach for the Daily Mail as much as I don't like it because I know there will be something in there that will spark debate. Now, if you if that was all they did, it would be brilliant. But actually what they also spark is, you know, people becoming increasingly anti-many things. And that is a really sad reflection on our society. Could we live without the Daily Mail? I think we probably could. Um, and at 66, maybe once Paul Dacre has stepped down, maybe it will change shape. Well, the rumour is, of course, that Geordie Grieg, the former um, London Evening Standard editor, will take now over. Now the mail on Sunday. Uh, I think there's a, there's a sense that he might take it in a slightly more moderate direction. My other problem with it, I suppose, is that what it paints as the big problems in our society, immigration being mm-hmm. one example... Even if you accept that there are immigration problems, I do think this country has some challenges with immigration. By by no way, do, by no extent, do I think that it's the biggest problem that we face. The, the, the so-called onslaught of the Romanians and yes. Bulgarians mm. that never was. That never, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, there pushed, was two of them. It pushed the country into this very odd state of mind at the beginning of the year to the point where you actually had Keith Vaz, who is an MP, a very distinguished one, sitting at Luton Airport in the arrivals lounge, waiting to see how many Romanians got off the flight from <laughs> Romania. Yes, that Two. was very sad, yes. I, I assume quite a number of Romanians got off the flight to, from Romania, apart from anything, but it turned out that one was coming here and he already had a job. It was a complete nonsense. But, Jamoke, okay, what do you think to the psychology of this, what you call the sidebar of shame? Because, you know, I'm guilty of looking at that. Mm. D-list celebrities, people I barely know, mm. largely women, and you think, ooh, they've put a bit of weight, weight on. on. Yeah, so and actually, that's a horrible off, yeah. thing for me to even be interested and I'm not, it's just presented that it's almost a bit like a drug, really. Yeah. And I've, I've considered several times actually taking the app off my phone. Yeah, yeah. well, I've got the app, you know, on, on everything, sadly. <laughs> yeah. It has to be said, yeah. so I'll put my hand up As for have that. I. The, the, I, I think there is something really horrible, but at the same time utterly fascinating about it. And what they have tapped into is the human desire 
for voyeurism. Essentially, they have gone, this is what people really want to know. I'm not particularly interested. In fact, sometimes I'll look down this bar and I'll go, who is that? Mm. I've never heard of them. And yet I'll still click. Now, you make brilliant headline, uh, headline writers who put things in that you go, oh, I just want to know what that means. Maybe you could say that. But also there's something about us wanting to be connected with one another. So, you know, what they used to call water cooler moments. are. So you want to be able to say, yes, I did see that article. I do know what they're talking about. And we live in a world of constant gossip. And what the Daily Mail does is they provide us with this gossip. So when I go to a party and someone says, did you see? I can say, yes, I did. Now, that's a ludicrous thing because actually I'm not particularly interested in those stories. I'm more interested in the news. But the reality is those are conversation starters that lead us somewhere else. And there is a distinction, of course, between the Daily Mail online and the Daily Mail, the newspaper. They are very, very different beasts. They have different editors and their readerships are very different mm. as well. I did hear quite a funny story about... Um, a service that was available for if you were of a liberal persuasion and didn't like the idea of adding to the Daily Mail website's hit count, you could pay to route your hit through a different IP server <laughs> so it wouldn't register and it wouldn't go on their figures, which I thought was quite entertaining. OK, well, so the uh, Daily Mail has not passed muster then on the Media Society <laughs> podcast, it seems, thus far. Right, so moving on to the next subject, Top Gear, if we can. Uh, it's recently returned to the BBC for its 21st series. It's got more than 5 million viewers and winning a rare victory against ITV in the ratings battle, it would seem. But should chasing ratings be left to the commercial networks? ITV has even gone as far as complaining to MPs that the Beeb is focusing on audience share rather than actually creative or innovative programming. Jamoka, you're a BBC broadcaster. Mm. Is it all about chasing? Chasing ratings at all cost. I don't think it's just about chasing ratings, although it has to be said, you know, good on Top Gear, even though I don't watch it. 21 years is a it's a long time to be in the business, as we know, you know, how quickly programmes come and go. But also the BBC is about having to generate money alongside the licence fee. So the reality is Top Gear is one of the most popular programmes, not only in this country, but also abroad. So actually, when you look at BBC Worldwide and how they syndicate that programme around the world, it's generating a huge amount of money for the BBC. So you may not necessarily get it here, you know, understand it in this country, but actually abroad, it really is a flag bearer and it also makes us a lot of money. So as a BBC person, I say long may it continue because, you know, that's how we survive. And in Increasingly, as the licence fee comes under scrutiny, there are programmes like that need to exist so that we can survive. How would you describe your show on BBC London? It's, would you describe it as a mainstream show? Would you describe it as a kind of niche show? It's very very spiritual, isn't it? it well, it's, it looks at, uh, you know, faith and ethics, but it's very broad spread. So I don't come from a perspective of any certain spirituality. I come from, I describe myself as a spiritual seeker. I like the idea of questions. I'm fascinated by philosophy. What does life mean? What is it, it about? So when my listeners come to the table and they come from all walks of life, they are able to ask those questions. Um, and that's, I think, what the BBC has above commercialism, is that it allows us to have these conversations that maybe if you were a commercial provider, you'd think, well, actually, would our advertisers really want to pay to have some sort of nebulous conversation about life? Um, and that's why I'm proud to work for the BBC. And I think it's really important that as a country, we continue to support the BBC. I'm not saying we're perfect. We do get it wrong. But I do think it's important to recognise what the broad spread of things that the BBC offer. I agree. For me, the unique way that the BBC is funded does give it 
that editorial license that you... I mean, for example, you know, John Humphreys, when he was having a big go at George Entwistle, you would never get the chief executive of ITV been harangued, you know, on News at 10 in that way. So I think it's, you know, you truly can trust, for me, what the BBC says, because it's prepared to take a stick to itself. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I mean, I think we live in difficult times because we have to have a form of accountability that is almost above scrutiny. You know, suddenly we have to be Mother Teresa and at the same time we somehow have to provide you with all this stuff that, that titillates you and then we have to make sure that the government likes us and then this and then that. And then, you know, it's a constant barrage of things that have to happen. At the same time, as a journalist, you have to be neutral, you have to be seen to be giving everybody a voice. I mean, it, it, it's a really tricky place to be in. You know, you're talking the historical BBC alongside the BBC of the future. What will that look like? What does that mean? And particularly, how do we fund that? And that that brings us back to Top Gear. That is one of the reasons why that programme needs to exist. But how brilliant that we try. Yes. It is tricky. It is incredibly difficult. And I love that we that we try to do it as a nation, as a society. And some people get very upset about the BBC, which I find very, very strange. I think it's fantastic. And I loathe some of the things that it makes. And that's entirely appropriate. Why do some people think that... Everything should be suited to them, sort of like they've ordered it in McDonald's or something. I don't like Top Gear at all. I, I don't like seeing three men who've never grown up, who are still stuck in quasi-adolescence. I, I dislike it profoundly, and, and I particularly dislike Jeremy Clarkson. I think he's a, he's a, he's a nasty piece of work, and he was in the, the news recently for doing something that was profoundly homophobic. I thought it was disgraceful, and if he worked in any other organisation on he Earth, been fired. he would have been fired mm. um, immediately. Um, without question, if he worked in, a, in any corporate organisation. There are certain people in the media that seem to be what I would call cards, you know, characters who seem to be able to get away with saying whatever they like. Boris would be one, Jeremy Clarkson, where they say, oh, that's just them being them, yes. their characters. And to be fair to Boris, he's never done anything in this league. Mm. If anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, he was asleep on a plane and one of his idiot confreres held up a um, bit of paper next to his head, his his asleep head, Careful, the, careful now with your description. I'm going to be very careful banned with, from iTunes. with what I can only describe as a, as a homophobic insult, and that doesn't really do it justice. Um, and with, that with the c word as well. Yeah, with the c yeah. word, and that in itself is bad enough. But the moron then tweeted it. There was an understandable furore, and he then put out this incredibly sarcastic apology, um, saying he was he asleep. Was, yes, he was very sorry if he offended anyone while he was asleep, which is of course not what people were offended about. Well, no, because he was awake that, when he tweeted it. He tweeted it. Um, so he's yes, it, it's absolutely absurd, and how he's still employed by the BBC is is a great surprise. Well, I mean, and I I take your point on that. Having said that, when I talk about Top Gear, I don't because I don't watch it. I don't I don't think oh it's Jeremy Clarkson, this person, that person. I just think the program. So it's really interesting. The distinction for me is not about the the individual presenters. I think the program in itself stands by itself. So you know, its content. All the presenters actually are null and void to me, but that's probably because I don't watch it. I'm not interested in in that kind of stuff, and so therefore, if you, I mean, the question is, if you took out the Clarkson and whoever else, Richard, whatever his name is, and and took them out of the program, would the program still exist? And if the question, if the answer is yes, then I think it has value for the BBC. It's one of many programs that has been hugely successful, and yes, of course, it has value, and of course, the BBC should be making it and appealing to the audience that that it appeals to. I don't know, it's it's demographic, but I'm guessing that it's primarily male. Um, I'm a man. I like cars. I like all sorts of things. I, I happen not to like Top Gear, but mm. I am 
absolutely delighted and I would defend to the death the little bit of my licence fee that goes to pay for it. What we don't value about the BBC here in this country astounds people anywhere else in the world. I've I've done training programmes for the BBC around the world and the pride that people take in being able to say either I work for the BBC or I'm associated with the BBC is incredible. And I I remember living in Nigeria at one point, even though I was born here, and actually listening to the BBC World Service and just thinking, oh my goodness, one day I just want to be on the BBC World Service, you know, listening to it in the hot sun and thinking this is the most amazing thing. And it is so easy for us to scapegoat the BBC, but actually it is a marvellous, marvellous thing that we have. Well, according to Adam Bolton, Sky News's outgoing political editor, Alistair Campbell has a lot to answer for, creating an army of what he calls mini Alistair Campbells, trying to limit access to politicians. He says that Number 10's media operation is far too controlling and no fun anymore. Jamoke, is he right? I think he is absolutely right. I mean, we are in the era of not just media training, but media trained to the nth degree. People are so scared of saying anything out of line that they'll literally say nothing at all. You do interviews with people and you're like, You ask them a simple question and you can see them thinking, what is the PC way to answer this question? It's astonishing to me in the day in this era where we have people saying things that I suppose in other countries they get locked up for. I'd rather have an ordinary person than have a politician. That's how I feel at the moment. I'd rather have a candid point of view because very, very few people will give you what their opinion. They'll give you the party line, they'll tell you things they think you want to hear, but they will not step out of line with what they believe the PC thing is. And do you think broadcasters are kind of complicit in that culture insofar as it has become this verbal joust that John Humphreys uses every trick in the book to get the minister to admit something and therefore they'll say something insipid and dodge the question and in fact both sides are to blame? No, no, I think what's happened is... You're absolutely right, Paul. (laughs) No, 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 I think what's happened is that they've just become scared and therefore we've had to do we've had a harder job i don't think i think yes you know john humphreys is john humphreys but i do think people are scared of what they say they're scared because not only for their parties not only for their own positions but also because they're scared of what what it means in terms of social media how it spreads out wide and broad and it happens very very quickly so someone can be misquoted someone can say something that they didn't mean to be misquoted end up just finding themselves in a whole lather that they weren't expecting. James, you media trained chief executive. So, I, do. I mean, we, we did speak about the Daily Mail being everything that's wrong with this country, but in fact, it's you personally, isn't it? You're, you personally are to blame for this culture that you're the one training and overtraining these chief execs to dodge the question. Do you plead guilty, sir? No, not guilty. Not guilty. And I, I do take issue with what Jamoke is saying, actually. I, I think it's very interesting that you say people aren't candid because they worry that it's going to blow up and spread. Well, where is it going to blow up and spread? It's going to do that in the media. And the media will seize on the tiniest, most controversial, most the, the slightly inaccurate moment in something that somebody said and they will shine a magnifying glass on it and they will broadcast it to the world. And I don't train people within an inch of their lives. I actually work very hard to try and get people to be candid. The problem that I face is they are very, very nervous of doing so. And that has now spread into the culture in an awful lot of large organisations, big corporates. They are very, very nervous about doing exactly what you say you want them to do. to be nervous about. Look, you know, in a way, I think... I agree, in in one sense. But it saddens me because here's the thing. What people tend to forget when they come on a radio show or on a television show is that the people watching make a decision based on what you say. So you... 
you could say, you could lay charge to the media and say the tiniest thing suddenly becomes this big volcano. But actually, you would find also that people will back anybody to the hilt if they feel they're being authentic. What is horrible is for someone to try and pull the wall over your eyes. And this is where politicians often get it wrong, thinking, well, if I say it in this way, this may be all right. And no one will notice that actually I'm trying to cover up or do something, you know, slightly well, so that people don't know what I'm doing. People know when people are being authentic. They are more moved by your ordinary story than they are by any highfalutin, seemingly beautiful explanation of what's going on. Absolutely. And if we could get back to those basics, then I think we would have a cleaner and fairer and clearer agenda when it comes to the media. The only thing I would say to that is that people do sometimes misspeak. They say something that they don't mean or they say something that they do mean and then they retract it. They have slips of the tongue. And I think we are, as a culture, very, very unforgiving in those circumstances. But that's not the media. That's the culture. That's not the media. I think there's an interplay between those two things. Uh, No, I think think that I I don't think you can lay charge for that at the media's doorstep. I think that it is not the media that suddenly makes you the, the big scapegoat. It is One. you say something and somebody hears it and thinks, well, he's actually saying the truth and therefore I have a problem with it. One thing we go through in, organi- in big organisations all the time when we're preparing for public appearances or media appearances is taking words and thinking, how could that be construed? How could that be twisted? And I'm not saying it's the media that does that. I think the general public do it. And you mentioned social media. Um, and, and that's a factor as as well. Things can be quoted out of context. Part of the problem is with the politicians. It is with the companies. They get very, very nervous. They don't want to go out and be human and be real and be candid. So I, I see it from both sides. Mm-hmm. And I think the world would be an infinitely better place if more people, whether it's company bosses or politicians, were going out and were speaking candidly. But for some reason, we've we've got out of the habit uh, and once you're out of the habit, it's very, very different to get back into it. To get back to the government, I I agree. And I've heard a lot of political journalists say this, that this government is very, very close. I think there may be a flip side to that, which is that the press operation of the coalition, I think, has quietly been rather successful, particularly the Conservatives. You have to remember that they have held on to the narrative around the economy incredibly successfully. And mm. that has been a been the result of a huge amount of media management, and some people would say media manipulation, to win that argument that said that the Labour government is the reason we have a deficit and financial problems in this country. And they've been incredibly successful at that. And I'm surprised how uncreaky, if you like, the coalition has been. I thought the coalition would struggle much more than it has. I actually think they've kept it together. So if Adam Bolton is complaining, I sort of wonder if there's a Liberal Democrat and Conservative spin doctor sitting somewhere tonight thinking, job done. So James, I do quite a bit of media training myself and I think it, there's two things that people want really. One is they actually they want to know how things work technically, you know, a studio, they've never done that. But, uh, and also they're nervous. Uh, you know, it's easy for us when we do these kind of things all the time. When I put myself back in the shoes of when I used to first do these kind of things, I was worried about sounding nervous, forgetting mm-hmm. my lines and everything else. But there's also the second point is that if you're asked a question, what are you going to say? And it is a, a, an issue, isn't it, in terms of you only have 30 seconds on air if it's telly, a couple of minutes on radio. It's not a lot to be able to get your points across. Nerves is the thing that I get asked about most in the communications training that I do. I suppose I say 
most of the time is that nerves are expected. I would actually be worried if somebody wasn't nervous about going on Newsnight or going on the Today programme or going in front of the Select Committee. They're supposed to be nervous. What I train them to do, hopefully, this is the aim anyway, is to be able to communicate their message and get their point across whilst being nervous. And I think that's the that's the subtle difference. And once people get their heads around that, they tend to be okay. They tend to focus on the nerves in the first instance. And of course, that informs hugely what they say. But once you work through the argument and make it bulletproof and you drill messages with people so that they know them in their sleep, in the main, they're okay. But most people focus. It's interesting that you say that they worry about the mechanics. That's the last thing I want people worrying about. I want them worrying about the five key points that they want to get across. What is the key rebuttal to the challenge that they're bound to face, for example? And once you get people obsessing about that, it's almost like pushing the nerves to one side. It's not about getting rid of the nerves. It's about making something else bigger than the nerves. And most of the time it works. How did you deal with it back in the, the early days? And being a singer as well, nerves affect the voice so much. How did uh, how was that a challenge for you? Yeah, I think it, breathing. I always say breathing. Breathe before you do anything. Breathe again before you do anything. It's really You have important. to remember to breathe. You have you, to remember to breathe. Situations. I think it's because it really relaxes you. There are, there are a couple of things I would say personally. I mean, I suppose I come from a background of theatre and then music and you're always facing people. I mean, I suppose the most nervous I was recently was singing the torch into Coventry in front of 25,000 people. And I just remember standing in the side of the stage going, oh, my gosh, I don't know that I can do this. And, I, you know, after that, I think you can do anything. I think there are several key things for me. One is always remember it's a conversation. It's it's it. I mean, I know you could go on the John Humphreys and then you're like, that's never a conversation. But actually, he is having a conversation. It's a it's a two way. It's a two way conversation. You have to listen. Because what happens often is people come in with their bullet points. They come in, they put them down, they go, this is what I'm going to talk about. It (laughs) never works. It's a disaster. It is an absolute disaster because what happens is the interviewer gets incredibly irritated because they can see you looking at your sheet and they're going, okay. Um, Well, I think the interviewer rubs his or her hands with glee. glee. It's the audience (laughs) that gets irritated, profoundly irritated. Well, yeah, but but also then, but also I think most importantly is it is my responsibility as an interviewer to get the best out of that interview. So I'm not looking at you going, I'm going to take you down, baby. I'm going to take you down. I'm looking at you going, it's I want less to adversarial have, than people think. It's less adversarial than you think. So if you will engage with the interviewer, you will find that you will get more out of that interview, even whether it's two seconds or whether it is, you know, five minutes. I, I go on the Jeremy Vine show quite a lot. And I, I always make sure that I've got four or five bullet points in big point on one sheet of paper there in front of me, just in case I yeah. seize up and I forget in point. an emergency. But, but I never look at it. And if I'm asked a direct question, I'll always answer it as a human being. I won't look to the yeah. paper. It's just about a fear of drying up. Yeah. And, no, and, I, and I, sorry, I, I, I totally accept that. I, I'm not saying don't take your bullet points, and I have bullet points here right now. Just don't but what re- I, repeat them but by just road. Ro- don't repeat them. Don't think that someone is going to go down the same road as you expect them to go down. And if you're not listening, that's where you get into trouble. You have to put yourself aside and listen. I was going to say, politicians, I think, are particularly guilty of that, yeah. of not answering the question. And that is something to do with the media management. You've got to stay on message. I personally think it's killing political debate in this country. But CEOs, managing directors of big companies do it too. And we can join forces, Jim McKay. It should be stopped. (laughs) A 30-second Super Bowl advert costs $4 million. Is it worth the money? Well, some experts say no. Most of the memorable adverts often leave audiences unable to recall the product mentioned. 
Many people are now arguing that that money shouldn't be spent on traditional television advertising, but on social media engaging with audiences directly on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Jamoka, you're in charge of a fictional multi-billion pound company and you've got four million quid. Are you going to spend it on a Super Bowl advert or are you going to spend it on social media? I'm going to spend it on a Super Bowl advert and uh, the, for the simple reason that it is one of the few points where everybody in America and internationally actually, but in America in particular, comes together, sits around a television or goes to their local whatever pub and actually has a moment together. It is very rare to have those moments now. We we talked earlier on about how diverse people's viewing habits and listening habits are. The Super Bowl brings them together. I think it's they've got about a 70, 78% share of all people in America actually watching all at the same time. That's a phenomenal figure. You don't get that anywhere. I mean, you know, even in the good old days, I think, what was it, Breaking Bad? I think they did 10.3 million or something like that. No spoilers, please. I'm only on season one. (laughs) But I mean, that sounds huge. But actually, before, they used to have 101 million watching a programme together. So... Yes, put your money there. Put your money there. Besides which, it's great fun. I love Super Bowl adverts. In fact, every year after the Super Bowl, I do. It's like, I've got to watch every advert. This year, they all the adverts seem to be all about fuzzy about, oh, isn't America wonderful? Oh, isn't it fantastic? Oh, well, it is we wonderful, are all but we together. don't need adverts. We together. But yes, I would definitely put my money in the Super Bowl. I'm a massive 24 addict, and they've just recently filmed a brand new season of it. And apparently, there was five trailers for the new series coming up in this Super Bowl yesterday, oh. so I've downloaded them off the internet and I'm going to watch them tonight, so I, I declare an interest there. James, are you going to agree with us or disagree? I both agree and disagree, I think. The Super Bowl... Oh, he's been I... over-media-trained, hasn't he? <laughs> oh, God. I will answer the question. <laughs> I think the Super Bowl this year has been very interesting in terms of advertising. Obviously, the big one, the big news story, was the Scarlett Johansson Soda Stream advert, which generated huge amounts of coverage and millions, if not billions of pounds worth of publicity for Soda Stream which I thought had probably gone bust in about Mm. 1989, but apparently it's still going because of this tension over Scarlett Johansson and Oxfam and the fact that their factories are in the occupied territories. Yes, And I wonder if SodaStream think that this has been a bit of a PR nightmare for them. If they do, they're wrong. It hasn't. It's been fantastic. Apart apart from a few very politically minded people, they won't be remotely bothered about where the thing's made. Most consumers don't engage with that. And they've had acres and acres of news coverage. Everyone's talking about SodaStream. The Super Bowl obviously generates huge amounts of value for the advertisers. They wouldn't do it mm. if they if it didn't. In this day and age, everything has to have a, an ROI, a return mm. on investment. But if you're asking in general, is traditional advertising dying and moving over to social media? Yes, is the very simple answer. Less and less is being spent in traditional advertising, what's called above the line, and it's being moved onto Facebook, onto Twitter, onto those YouTube adverts that you don't like. And the reason it is moving in that direction is because it works and there is an ROI, there is a return on investment. Facebook have cracked how to do advertising on mobile, on on the mobile platform. So when you see adverts in your Facebook app on your iPhone, that is making an awful lot of money for Facebook. It is the main reason that their share price has gone up, that they cracked how to deliver adverts on the iPhone. And of course, the amount of money overall is not necessarily going up. I, I don't know the figures, but it's probably going down given that we've just come out of a recession. A lot of companies are cutting their cloth. It is being transferred. That is a huge threat for traditional broadcasters and TV advertising and particularly newspapers who get 
the bulk of their revenue from adverts in the press. Are you OK? I agree with you on that in terms of the, the, the dispersal, if you like, of advertising and where it needs to go. But there are certain programmes, certain events that I think warrant the million pound 30 second advert. Absolutely. Because it is not just that immediate advert, it's the circle of influence that it then generates for all of these advertisers. Um, and that's why I would still say, even if you were going down all those other means, that you would still put your money on Super Bowl. Um, and also because it's, a, it's the American dream. Super Bowl is about the, what is America? That is, and in fact, if you look at the adverts in 2014, that's what all the adverts have been, you know, the Chevrolet advert, uh, the, you know, the, the Coca-Cola advert about America is all these different things, you know, the Chevrolet advert about we make cars and Bob Dylan striding around going, yes, they can make phones in Japan and they can do this, but we make the cars that you drive, you know, it's all about American pride and that's what Super Bowl is about. But it's the big day and they are relatively few and far between. Of course, there's still going to be value in these big, big ticket adverts. I think of even something like Turkish Airlines, who I think of um, used Lionel Messi, who probably cost them a, um, a pound or two or a Turkish lira or two to, um, to hire for their adverts. It is worth it. But the day to day stuff is definitely mm. moving on oh, to and social, I would agree moving on to the you. Internet. Yeah. What we see now is the sort of a democratization, if you like, of, of advertising in that you get what you want or what the advertisers think you want. So there's adverts now that chase you around the Internet. Now, yeah. some people have a it's quite freaky, that big, actually. Well, <laughs> Jamoke has had a very visual reaction. Uh, to my I, I, I know this is a podcast, but can I just tell you how much I loathe? I do, too. I love I love follow back. I hate. Hate it well, you with can a turn passion. It off. I do too. No, but you can't. You, you can't can. always. No, no, no. Well, I've gone into my. <laughs> what are they called? Those things. You, We're right. You, just. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! You have just touched such a raw nerve with me. But they okay. are horrible. How does it work in terms of? I imagine you know you've got the new album coming out and yeah. you, you can't afford a spot on the Super Bowl. No, right? I, can't. I, I would imagine. So. <laughs> oh you know, yeah, I'll do follow back for that. <laughs> yeah, but so social media must present quite an opportunity for you to kind of promote your radio show on BBC London, yeah. your new album. I yeah. mean, I follow you on Twitter. I see what yeah. you're up to. Yeah, Jazz Night here at the Ronnie Scotts, etc. That must be quite a good opportunity for you to promote what you do. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I, social media is just such a boon. I mean, it's a boon for artists. If you're an artist, if you, if you, in whatever area, not necessarily just artists, but anything new and upcoming, social media, if you use, utilize it properly, and we follow in your footsteps, Paul, and bow down every time we see your name, um, <laughs> that you can, you absolutely can make inroads. Uh, you know, above and beyond the traditional means. So, I mean, I do not have a marketing budget of, you know, universal or anything like that. But it's accessible now. It's, it's putting it within reach. You could say, I'm going to put £100 into this campaign and you could. And if someone looks at your album but doesn't buy it, it is, after all, a discretionary pur yeah. uh, purchase and times are a bit tough that's going to chase them around the internet and they might just buy it in the end and it could be the best album they've ever bought. Yes, but there's a difference between them, my personal album and, and the followbacks I get. As a woman, I get followbacks which are all about clothing and I've tried getting rid of it and it annoys me because it keeps showing me the same dress that I looked at like five days ago. Show me another dress. Don't show me the same dress. If I wanted the dress, I'd have bought the dress. Anyway, so I just need to get <laughs> that out. You seem to have touched a nerve with that. I just hate 
<laughs> and as ever with all of these podcasts, uh, we could carry on doing this for hours and hours, but I think that's probably the best point to leave it there. Um, we normally kind of uh, tell everyone their, their Twitter handles and how to get hold of everyone. So, James, do you want to start? What, what are you on Twitter and what's your website? How can people get hold of you? Uh, very simply, jameshutchinson.co.uk. My Twitter, unfortunately, my name wasn't available. I was late oh, to the party. Oh, Johnny come lately. I know. So I'm at Hutchcoms, oh, which is my schoolboy nickname with com- communications shortened. There's a bloke called at Paul Blanchard and he's got like 20 followers on Twitter and oh, I missed him by about two weeks. At and James Hutchinson yeah. has tweeted zero times. I know. Whereas <laughs> at Paul W.R. Blanchard, which is my Twitter, has like 17,000 followers or something like that. Anyway, so <laughs> what was your Twitter again? Hutchcoms. Hutchcoms, and it's jameshutchinson.co.uk. That's the one. Is that correct? Jim, okay. I, however, have my full name Yay. on Twitter, on Facebook, and uh, on my website. It's Jamoke for Sherlock, which is spelled J U M O K E F for Freddie, A S H O L A dot com. Any of those will get you. And uh, that's um, how I'm known on Twitter as well. Oh, for an interesting name. Indeed. Yeah, I know. Yeah, hey, oh, Paul, for having Paul's to spell it every interesting. time. Paul's quite interesting. <laughs> and finally, it's just for me, if anyone wants to follow my nonsense tweets, which you, you didn't like me saying that last time, did you? Jim, You're that, far too self-deprecating. No, I'm not. They're Dude. all nonsense and that's just a factual description. But uh, if anyone wants to follow me personally on Twitter, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard because, again, I missed the uh, the at Paul Blanchard. But more importantly, if you want to follow the Media Society, it is at The Media Society. And why not consider joining us or at least signing up to our newsletter? It's www.themediasociety.com. Thank you ever so much for listening to the Media Society podcast. Thank you to Jamoke and thank you to James. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. A Big Things Media Production.